We're turning to Joshua today, near the end of Joshua, chapter 23, and we're considering a portion of verse 14. It's page 195 in the Pew Bible. Just a a small little, I don't think it's even a whole sentence in the in the verse there that we're going to consider. Joshua 23, verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. And now, this is Joshua speaking, and now... I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. We're looking at that first sentence, you know... In your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised. Twice, actually, near the end of Joshua, this uh, statement is made or this sentiment is conveyed. The first is at the end of chapter 21. You can turn there, flip back. It's the last verse of chapter 21. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass, very similar to what we're looking at. Now that, in chapter 21, that's the narrator speaking. In chapter 23, it's Joshua himself making this statement. What a a remarkable statement for him to make as he surveys his life. He's about to die, he says, about to um, go all the way way of all the earth. So he's surveying his life. He's surveying his, his time as a leader of the nation. He's surveying God's work in their midst, and this is his conclusion. Not a single, not one promise, not one word of a promise has failed that the Lord has made to his people. What a remarkable statement to make in light of all that God had done in giving them the promised land, the land of Canaan. It's not as though it's a small promise or a slight promise or a promise to have the land of Canaan, a promise that is easily fulfilled from a human perspective. Consider with me all of the obstacles that stood in between Israel and obtaining that promise. The very first, we go back the whole way to Genesis and it's infertility. How can somebody like Abraham and Sarah have children in order to fulfill this word that they'll have a great nation and they'll be able to, to, to uh, produce the people that it would take to procure such a land? That's the first obstacle is, is infertility. Second, they had political obstacles along the way. You consider the entire empirical powers of Pharaoh uh, that were dead set on keeping Israel enslaved in Egypt. And once they get out of Egypt, we see a third obstacle is their own sin. Right? It's in discontentment and stubbornness that uh, they um, uh, are required to... Spend 40 years, not in the land of plenty, but wandering through the desert. Could they survive? Now, now they're facing starvation and, and thirst 
Yet another obstacle. Would these things annihilate them before they could ever obtain the promised land? Think about this. There were also natural obstacles. A Red Sea that had to be crossed. A Jordan River that had to be passed through. How could this nation, made up of the elderly, the infirm, uh, infants, children, all the rest, how could they make it across these waters? How could they overcome these barriers? And yet they did, and once they've reached the border, the final obstacle presented itself, and that would be the residents, right? The Canaanites themselves, thousands of them, not keen on giving up their territory. Swords are brandished, teeth are bared. They are, uh, the Israelites are not coming up against poor peasant farmers. These are people that are called giants in the scriptures. Uh, The fighting will be fierce, And yet, in answer to each and every single one of these obstacles that tried to stand in the way of God's people, Joshua says, not one word has failed. Not a single one. Infertility? Hebrews 11, 12. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. What about Pharaoh? Deuteronomy 26, 8, And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. Pharaoh is no match for God. What about the Red Sea and the Jordan River? Psalm 114, When Israel went out of Egypt, the sea looked and fled, and Jordan turned back. What about the wilderness? Deuteronomy 29, 5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not Worn off your feet. And we read earlier in Deuteronomy 8, right? You were hungry and I gave you something you didn't even know existed. Manna from heaven. I fed you. Starvation was not an obstacle that God's promise could not overcome. What about their enemies? Psalm 111, verse 6. God has shown his people the power of his works in giving them, in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Now that was simply a brief survey To say to you, Joshua's word here is no exaggeration at all. He's absolutely right. Not one word of all of the good things God has promised has failed. Every one of his promises were fulfilled. Now, were they fulfilled the way Israel was expecting? No. What about in their timetable? Unlikely. But they were fulfilled. They weren't broken. And this is... Here we're seeing something of of the character of God that makes him one who is worth believing in. We talk about we need to believe that there is God, right? That there is a God and and who he is. We need to believe that he is, but we also need to believe in him. What makes him a God worth believing in? It's his faithfulness. It's the fact that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. It's the fact that not one word that he's ever spoken to his people has failed. God will move heaven and earth before he allows one of his promises to be broken. And he, we see that he literally does that for Israel as he parts the Red Sea, as he parts the Jordan River. And now, as they are settled in what is rightly known as the promised land, Joshua is not content to make this uh, declaration on his own. If you look at the verse there, you see at the beginning, it's, it's sort of an exhortation. It's not just an observation, it's an exhortation. He wants all of Israel to share in this Um, sentiment. And so what does he say? You know, you know, all of you in your heart and in your soul that God is good, that God is faithful, and that God's trustworthy. He's preaching them, preaching to them. He's saying, you know this. He's imploring the people 
to live in light of the faithfulness of God. It's one thing to know that God is faithful. Now live your life as though he is faithful. He's a promise keeper, so live like it. So, if you will permit me, let me take on the role of Joshua, as it were, to exhort all of you uh, to live in light of what you already know is true. You know it, every one of you, in your heart and in your soul, that not one word of all the good things that the Lord has promised you has ever failed. You know that. I want to remind you of what you know. I want you to know that, or remind you that God is faithful. Now, has, have his promises come the way you expected? No, in your timetable, unlikely. But they've never failed. God is faithful. And I don't have the time, and if I had the time, I certainly do not have the talent to expound on God's faithfulness the way it deserves. Uh, really, the entire scriptures are an exposition on this attribute of God. From Genesis to Revelation, we're reading the story of God's never-failing faithfulness. Turn anywhere in your Bible, and you're learning about how God keeps his promises to his people. Anywhere. This is who he is. And so this is what he does. But in the time that we do have, I want to help us think in what ways God is faithful. In what ways exactly is he faithful? I mean, again, consider what Joshua says. Not one word, not a single word has failed. That's an immense statement to make. And it's such an expansive statement that we can start to lose the significance of it in the infinity of it. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, where it's so big that it's like, it doesn't even mean anything. We, we do that with numbers, if I can give a negative example. Um, talk about debt, right? Let's say you owe... $2,000 in debt on a, on a credit card debt, or maybe um, $20,000 in a student loan, or maybe $200,000 on a mortgage. We get those numbers, right? They have, um, they have a day-to-day -day impact on our lives. They, they restrict our spending. They limit our, our budget. They make sense to us. We, we, get, we get what those numbers mean. But then uh, when you learn that the United States government is $33,905,473,436,272 in debt, it is a number that is so big it just doesn't really mean anything, right? Oh, what does that even mean to me? I, I, I don't, that, that doesn't really affect me in my day-to-day. -day. The $2,000 I owe my credit card, that does, but, but I don't really get this number. Well, the infinite nature of God's perfections will defy our understanding. It will. And that should humble us. But God's perfections should never become incoherent or meaningless to us. Not applicable to us. And that's what I, I don't want to have happen as you think of this verse. Not one word has failed. It's like, well, that's, that's so great, but I, don't really, I can't really hold on to that. So to help us, what I want to do is zoom in on that statement and kind of get into the granular in order to expand our appreciation of the infinite, okay? And I want to do that by, by asking this question, what kind of word has God given that never fails? What kind of promises does God keep? And I want us to reflect on 10, 10 of them. What kinds of promises does God keep? First, 
He keeps promises that uh, we don't even think twice about. He keeps promises that we don't think twice about. Certain promises of God properly rise to the top of the Bible's testimony of God and his work. Promises of provision, comfort, mercy, salvation. Uh, But we should remember that God's providence, that is the little details of every single day, uh, the preservation of all of his creatures and all their actions, is the fulfillment of an eternal promise of God. In theology, we call that eternal promise God's decree. The shorter catechism says, what, is, what are the decrees of God? And the answer is, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, whereby, uh, according to the counsel of his will, for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. In other words, if it happens... It happens because God promised that it would happen. Whatsoever comes back. Everything. The things we don't think twice about. Every beat of your heart. Every breath of your lungs. Every snowflake that falls in winter. Every blade of grass that grows in spring. All joined together to give proof of the veracity of this statement. Not one word has failed. Not one word. Everything that comes to pass, even those things we take for granted and don't think often about, is proof that God keeps his promises. God keeps promises we don't think about. He keeps promises we don't know about. There's a thought. The Bible, it's a big book, right? It's chock full of revelation about God and his character and his work. Do you know every promise that the, that the Lord makes in the scriptures? Do you know every single one? If you don't, he still keeps them for you. Put yourself in, in the promise-making position. What motivation would you have to make, much less keep, a promise that the person you're making and keeping it for doesn't even know about? No motivation at all. Not really. But what we're learning is that God's promises um, and keeping them, uh, he's bound by his own character. His promises are not contingent on our knowledge or our understanding of them. He makes them and therefore he keeps them. He makes and keeps promises that we don't even know about. Third, promises that we don't believe in. God keeps the promises we don't believe in because his promises aren't contingent on our belief. Doubt does not nullify God's promises. Zechariah is a great example of that. Um, Isn't he, right? In response to the promise of a son at his old age, he scoffs. And what does God do? Well, God could have revoked his word. He could have made null and void the guarantee of sending one who would cry out, prepare the way of the Lord. But that would be to cancel the coming of the Messiah. No John, no Jesus. So praise God that in response to our doubts, in response to our disbelief, God doesn't break his word. Rather than allow allow our doubts to discount his promise, what we see happen so often in the Bible that God keeps his promise in order to discount our doubts. To prove to us who he really is. And that he's one worth trusting in. So our hope, friends, in the fulfillment of God's promise is not in the one who has the faith in that promise. It's in the faith of the one who made the promise. He is faithful. He will do it. Even the promises we doubt or disbelieve. 
And all this joins together to teach us a fourth thing. God keeps promises we don't deserve. Now, which one would those be? All of them? All of them? It's interesting that once you start looking for it, you'll notice that the faithfulness of God in the scriptures is often extolled in contrast to the sinfulness of man. It's, it's often when the biblical writers are talking about how, how depraved we are that then they say, but let's return to the faithfulness of God. We don't deserve it, but, but we know we have it in him, one who keeps his promises. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, mercies never come to an end. Lamentations 3. Exodus 34 says he's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So you see, mercy is coming out the same time as faithfulness because it's what they need. Or the psalmist teaches us to praise God saying, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. Now we also need to keep in mind that God keeps his promises of justice and judgment. That's the fifth thing. Because a corollary to God's faithfulness is his justice, right? He's promised to do what is right. He'll always do, faithful, what is right, just. Uh, We don't necessarily see that reality yet, but we will. The Bible reminds us that it's coming in order to keep us patient, in order to keep us from despair. So if it appears that the wicked are winning, then dear Christian, just wait. Just wait, because the Lord is faithful, and he is just. Not one word of God's promises fail, including vindication for his people and judgment against his enemies. Now, that word should also maybe scare us a little bit and wake us up from our our stupor and cautious us from sin and disbelief, because it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It will come. That should inform how we act in the here and now. That's what Peter thinks in his second epistle. He helps us to see that every day that judgment is delayed is a kindness of the Lord so that we would call on him, that we would turn from our sin, that we would repent. That's what he writes. Be diligent to be found by him when he comes again, to be found by him without spot or blemish and count the patience of the Lord as salvation because he is coming and he will judge. Number six. Promises that no one else could keep. God keeps promises that no one else could keep. Have you considered that if God didn't keep his word, there's no one else who could step up and stand in and and do it for him? He makes promises that nobody else could possibly make, and he keeps them. We we really don't know what that's like in this life. uh, We make promises to our spouse, and our spouse makes promises to us. And uh, maybe, tragically, they break them, and there's a separation. And then maybe you get another spouse, right? Somebody else to step up and to stand in. Or you have best friends who say, They're on your side, then they betray you. So you get other friends or a business partner who cheats you, and you take them to court, and you get another business partner. But God is the only one who makes a promise, and it's entirely dependent on him and nobody else to keep that promise. We have no hope, and we have no help in this life if God didn't keep the promises that he makes because there's nobody else that could do it for him. 
There's no substitute. There's no next best option. God makes promises that no one else could make, and he keeps them. John Owen once wrote that implicitly connected with every single promise of God is this consideration. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Seventh, God keeps the promises that we long for. You know, being made in God's image and having eternity placed in our hearts, all the hopes and the desires and the uh, longings of every single human being are found in God and in God alone. And we're told that he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, We don't care about somebody who keeps their word if their word isn't one we want them to keep, right? Um, We want our candidate to keep their campaign promises. We don't care about the other team. Um, but we want our friends to keep their word to us. We're not so much concerned about other people and how their friends treat them. For the Christian, the things we long for, we desire for, God promises to give us. And so what does that mean for you and me? It means that in the final analysis, when the dust of this sinful world settles, those who place their faith in God are never disappointed. Ever. Can anyone or anything else give you that guarantee? The promises that God keeps are promises that are for our good. Promises for our good. Number eight. Joshua reminds us that by calling them the good things. Not one word of all the good things that the Lord has promised. He calls them the good things. Now, of course, the truth is there isn't a single thing that God has promised that won't be for our good. Paul, very much echoing the sentiment of Joshua, preaches at us, exhorts us. He says, and we know, you know this in your heart and in your soul, we know That God works all things together for the good of those who love him. All things are for our good. The lifelong challenge of every Christian, though, is training our thoughts uh, to interpret the circumstances of life through that lens. To recognize this is actually a good thing for me. This will be good for me. That can be hard, especially when you're suffering, especially when you're struggling. But you need to realize it's an unshakable fact of God's faithfulness. Once he's for you, he's always for you. He set everlasting, his everlasting love upon you. So, so you can never interpret life's circumstances as though God is hating you. How could a God who is unchanging and unchangeable hate those people with whom he is loved with an everlasting love, an unchangeable love? Once he's for you, he's always for you. And he's for you for your good. Number nine, God promises are for today. What kind of promises does God keep? Ones that are for today, right here, right now. His trustworthiness is a right here, right now blessing. There are aspects of God's promises that we wait fulfillment for, but here's something we don't have to wait for. Having the loving care of God attending our every step, every day of our lives. He's the God who does give us daily bread. He's the God who gives us just enough light for the step we're on. He's the God whose mercies are new and are renewed every single morning. As sure as the sun comes up, and the sun is out there, okay? The clouds notwithstanding. But as as sure as the sun rises, God is there for his people. Uh, He says that in Jeremiah. If you could break my covenant with the sun and the moon that they don't rise at their appointed place, then maybe you can break my covenant of love towards the people of David. No, he says, my love is as sure as... As the sun and it rises every day. God is for you right now. Right now. You don't have to wait to experience the promise keeping God. 
But finally, we rejoice that the good things God has promised for us do extend from today into tomorrow and all our tomorrows. Indeed, he keeps promises that are for eternity, promises that reach into eternity. We could put it like this. The promises of God are so great that um, this world isn't big enough for us to experience them. They need an eternity to be enjoyed. They're so good. I wonder if you're looking forward to that, literally looking forward, looking ahead, recognizing that the best is yet to come. Consider what Paul, the way Paul explains God's past grace as a way of anticipating future grace in Ephesians 2. says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, that's past, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Because he saved us by grace, we know there's more grace yet to come. It's an astounding and amazing thing uh, for um, sinners like us, for shadowy creatures like us, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it will take forever to learn just how amazing it really is. But the fact that God keeps promises that reach into eternity means that we can say with confidence, the best is yet to come. So those are 10 of the infinite ways with which you could frame You're thinking about God's faithfulness and how not one of his words ever fall to the ground and fail. And knowing something of that truth is meant to change how we live. Isaac Watts uh, once said that the best life now is to live upon the promise. That's the best kind of life, to live upon the promise. And that's Joshua's intention for Israel. He's saying, learn of the faithfulness of God so you can live in light of the faithfulness of God. That was something they needed to hear as they were about to enter into, or they have entered into, um, a new season. Uh, uh, there was major changes for the nation. They entered a new country, a new land, a new stage. What were they to do? Look to the God who never changes. Everything's changing around you. Look to the God who never changes. And it's um, a fitting time for our little portion of God's people to stop and reflect on that truth as well. As we enter a new year and a new season of ministry and a new building and a lot of unknowns, we look to the God who never changes. Uh, There's a lot that can be distracting about what's to come. Maybe some things that are discouraging about what's ahead. There's a lot that's exciting too. But it all comes with these question marks, right? What will it be like in a new place after decades in this wonderful home? Will people come? Will we fill up the space, we hope? But then at the same time, that means change too. How will that go? Will we, will we meet budgets? There's a sadness about leaving what's loved and familiar. There can be an obsession over what's new and potential. Yet in the face of change and newness, whether that intimidates or exhilarates or maybe a little bit of both, in the face of those things, we're called to obedience and trust. That's what it means to live in light of the faithfulness of God, obedience and trust. You know, the Christian life isn't meant to be complicated, and the children's hymn gets it exactly right. Trust and obey. There's no other way. Trust and obey. So 
God's faithfulness calls us to obedience. It calls us to piety. It calls us to holiness, to, to right living. That's the main thrust of Joshua's address to the nation. Here are other things he says in that chapter. Be very strong to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law. Turning aside from it neither to the right or to the left. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. Later on, choose this day whom you will serve. It's about obedience. When you're in this new place, there's something that hasn't changed, and that's what God expects from you. Now, does God's faithfulness inform our living? I think it's as simple as this. God has never failed you, so don't you fail him. Don't abandon him. Don't reject his word. Don't reject his law. He's never going to let you down if you stick by his way and his word. God's faithfulness calls us to obedience, and it calls us to trust as well. He has a perfect track record of dealing kindly with his people. Isn't that amazing? A perfect track record of dealing kindly and graciously with his people. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. So what do we have to be afraid of? Why not trust him? Uh, David tells us, trust in him at all times. Pour out your hearts before him because God's a refuge, Psalm 62. And so when God calls us into something new, something that's strange, something that's unfamiliar, we're not to be a trembling people, a timid people. We're to be a trusting people. We trust him. We trust him. Ours is the exhortation from Hebrews 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Don't doubt him. Hold unswervingly to him. And so, brothers and sisters, I I want you to knock down the obstacles of doubt and distrust that circumstances prop up in front of us, that the devil puts in our way, or even that our own sin comes up with. I want you to knock it all down with the wrecking ball of this reality, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we have no words with which we can properly thank you for your faithfulness to us, your kindness to us, and the fact that you are always with us. I pray that as we step into a new year, a new season, a new building, we would recognize that what you call us to is the exact same trust and obedience. And we have the same reason to render these things to you because you never, never change. You're the faithful God. You are our refuge. In this new year, may we place ourselves in that safe place of your perfection, your faithfulness, your unchanging character. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.